0: What up? It's, it's been a minute. I'm still Open Mike Eagle, though, and you still are whoever you are, unless you've changed. This is a bonus episode of what it happened was. And this beat is playing. It's my new single. It's called I'll Fight You. It's produced by Diamond D of digging in the crates. Announce a new album and all that. But we'll get to that in a second. This is a bonus episode of What It Happened Was with Dante Ross. In this episode, he's talking about his experiences producing legendary legendary. Legendary guitarist. And singer-songwriter Carlos Santana. And you know, Dante, you know, he did kind of good with that. Him and Everlast and Carlos Santana, they messed around and won a Grammy together. So we get into all of that. You know, when we tape these conversations, we have these marathon sessions, and me and the guest, whether it's Prince Paul, LP, or Dante Ross, we're in touch every week and we're talking and we're talking and we're talking. Um, and then sometimes conversations kind of fall through the cracks. And when Carlos Santana had his health scare a little while ago, I'm like, wait a minute, we talked about Carlos Santana and that never came out. And I was like, oh my goodness, we have like this entire lost conversation. And so uh, we've assembled that into an episode and that's what this is. Get some great stories of Dante and the Grammys, Dante and working with Carlos Santana, his band, and, and uh, how meaningful it was um, for Dante to be working with Carlos Santana, specifically in the studio they were working at in the Bay Area, which is a place that's very important to Dante's family. So we get into all of that. It's a great conversation. I miss these. I've been doing another podcast, though. If if you're um, still into hearing me interview people in these moments between what had happened was seasons. I restarted my podcast Secret Skin. This uh, season, I've had interviews with Brother Ali, Murs, Billy Woods. Dan Harmon, Ron Funches, Dumbfounded, Psalm 1, Blueprint, Rhyme Fest. Bunch of folks. Bunch of folks. So if you uh like hearing me ask people questions, that's a, a great place to continue to do that. But yeah, that uh the but the the beat the butte the butte beat that just went off. That's my new single. It's called I'll Fight You. For my new album I announced called Component System with the Auto Reverse is dropping October 7th Got pre-orders available for limited edition vinyl We got some tour dates We're doing Chicago, Minneapolis, Madison Milwaukee, Des Moines and more On the way But it's nice to talk to you I'm Open Mike Eagle Speaking with Dante Ross On this bonus episode of What It Happened Was Enjoy yeah. Welcome in This is Open Mike Eagle This is season three of What It Happened Was, y'all. We got another very special guest with us. He needs no introduction, but if you ever read the liner notes on classics from all kind of folks, you know who knew where to find the dope. It's Dante serving stories like entrees. I guess for season three, it's a giant like Andre, Mr. No Shit Taker, the third base hit maker, eggnog innovator, the ODB motivator. He signed a roster full of heavy hitters Office messenger. The Grammy winner, motherfucker Dante walk. In the '90s, you would call him the plug, Sign signing act after dope. Act if you don't know don't call a scrub. what it happened was. You've had a hell of a career already by this point. You've been a part of a lot of projects that have come out to varying levels of success. What was your relationship to the Grammys like at that point? Is that something you cared about? Was that something that meant something for you nah, as an industry it really person? didn't mean
1: nothing to me. And I even say it now, a Grammy and a Metro car to get you on the train. <laughs> you know, like, like fucking, I think um, the dudes who did dude who let the dogs out got a Grammy, right? Like, right, what does it really right. mean when, when your man Jethro Tull got best heavy metal Grammy? And so to me, it's like, you know, man, I always say this, it's like, it's akin to of that book, The Alchemist. The journey is the prize in and of itself. Right. So the Grammy's a nice bow on the end of the prize. Don't get me wrong, and it means my price is going up, right? It's validation from your peers. It opens some doors. But like I said, the, the validation for me really, the, the prize is the journey in and of itself. What happened to get there and the road you take. And the road we took was bumpy, but poetic and ultimately beautiful. Mm -hmm. And I had a lot of gratitude for how it all played out. And honestly, only a few times in my life have I felt that God walked the walk with me and God walked that walk with me. Um, And it really connected me to my higher power, my own misunderstanding, because I don't understand God, but I do know there was something bigger at work then, at at play there. Mm -hmm. And, And yo, you know, my life has kind of been like that always. Whenever, look man, I was homeless in high school. Me and my moms went through some real wild shit. And um, we made our way back to land and she fixed her life and therefore gave me a better foundation. So, you know, I've been, you know, I've been through a lot of shit in my life prior to that. But whenever it got bad, it always ends up uh, with some form of, of, you know, celebration at the end, something to behold. Something good always mm. comes of, of personal pain and struggle for me. And this is another example of that and just a reaffirmation that God was working um, for a bigger, had a bigger plan for me. And when I talk about God, I talk about in a very abstract way. I'm not like, you know, heaven and hell and Jesus and God, God and my higher power resides on earth. It's just a, a positive consciousness that hopefully I contribute enough to that karmically it comes back to me while I'm still alive. I don't necessarily believe in the mm-hmm. afterlife or any overtly Christian or Catholic way of God. But, but I did feel like in the record, in the journey we were taking, I hate using that word journey, it's so like, you know, corny fucking Hollywood <laughs> self-help bullshit, but, but you know, the path we were on, the experience we had was a prize in and of itself, and whenever my back's against the wall and things look bleak in the darkest hour, it gets better. You know, Everlast having a heart attack, being at the centerpiece of what I'm talking about, my best friend almost dying, but look, he lived to have the biggest success of his, one of the biggest successes of right. career, and certainly the biggest success of my career.
0: That's uh, you know, that's shit awesome. Just to even even uh, hear that, put in that context, I am uh, curious though, just specifically in terms of your experience, like, you know, when the Grammy nom comes up and y'all go, like, did you go to the event? I did. Like, what did what was that? I got like a good story for,
1: you? for it. And, and uh, um, rest in peace, John Gamble. And we were in the middle of doing another record. We were doing. I think the Hesher record and, and we maybe were doing the second Everlast record. No, we weren't. But the Grammy nod comes and John doesn't want to come to the Grammys. And, and our relationship, this is the downside of success. We had more work than, than we could do. And John was, technology was changing. Pro Mm -hmm. Tools became a thing and we entered digital recording realm, and we built a new studio, and we're do- in L. A. or in New in York. New York. This is new and York? we were okay. doing um, another record that we got paid a shit on of money to do. And John was um, tasked with a lot of the technical responsibility of, of building our new studio and mastering Pro Tools, wh- which I eventually had to learn as well. But he was kind of the guy who'd learn everything first. I figured out the MPC sixty. Here's how we use it. D. Right. So he was also, I think um, he was really overwhelmed and he declined to go to the Grammys. So I had this new girlfriend. I had gone back to New York, enjoying the spoils of success. I, uh, I had met this one girl who was beautiful. I liked for a long time, but I didn't work out. She left me for yoga or we left each other for <laughs> yoga, which is all good. I also at this point, I forgot to say this, so when I moved to L.A., I started to work out again. Maybe actually the first time I ever started working out, and I came back from LA and I was fucking ripped, 175 pounds, rock solid, and I, I stayed in the gym. So physically, I had changed a lot. I'd lost all my baby fat. I'm I'm half a Guido, so I never been ashamed to show my body. So I was walking around with with tank tops a lot and jerseys, <laughs> and and I'm ripped. That's the guns out. Yeah, I get the guns out. The gun shows on. And you know, I you know, I, was a, I guess I was a good looking kid at that point, and. A lot of a lot of women who didn't used to give me attention was giving me attention. And you know, like look, I'm, I'm ab b-boy, so you know, I got my gold chain on and my watch and my earrings and my bracelet and I'm 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 flexing, you know, I'm flexing on cats. I'm I got fucking I don't got muscles, I'm tatted up, um I got my 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 jewels on, like you can't fuck with me, right? I I might wear sunglasses like indoors, I don't give a fuck. I was on some <laughs> shit. So there's this one girl who I really liked for a long time, and I seen her in Vegas at, at the Magic convention. That's the other thing. People were just like, all of a sudden people were like, hey, host this table at the club. Here's $500. Hey, we want to fly right. out to Magic to sit in our booth for a minute. Like, you know, all this crazy, all this cool shit's happening. So, so I did all that, and, and um, I went to Magic, and I seen this shorty who I, I had a thing for her for a long time, but she never really gave me no play. I just was like, you know what, man? I'm... I'm I'm a, I'm gonna shoot my shot and I shot my <laughs> I, sh- I I I hollered and she was like, "Oh, all good." She gave me her number. And then I was like, "Yo, I'm gonna call you. Um, I'm gonna call you when I get back to New York." And she was like, "Okay." And like I called her like I didn't I didn't do the like two day cool guy. I called her right away like, "What up?"
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And we hung out and and it was on. It was super on and she became my girl for several years. She's one of the great loves of my life. It's a woman named Mary Sander, and um she, you know, she had Road Shotgun with me for, for a lot of success. And she came with me to uh, to get the grant for the Grammys, for the, the Santana thing, which we kind of haven't mm-hmm. haven't touched on. She came with me instead of John. And when I won, people was trying to get me to go on stage and I didn't go on stage. And I should have. Mm. So this first album, man, it sells
0: three mil. Yeah. Gosh, man. Was that. Anywhere near what you were expecting when y'all were working on it, was there ever any way that you could see it going up I thought maybe a gold record.
1: I thought because Cake was gold, Beck might have been platinum. He probably won like five times now, but you know, so I thought we're going to get a a gold record. Maybe we inch towards platinum. You know what record came out at the same time was Eagle Eye Cherry. So Eagle Eye Cherry had his joint out and they came out at the same time and it was charting in the same place and we just took over. So I thought we was going to be like Mm. Eagle Eye Cherry. Or there was, um, or Cake. I thought he was gonna get a gold record and he was gonna tour and have a little run. I didn't think it was gonna go full blown. But I also forgot, unlike Cake and, and Eagle Eye Cherry, Everlast a motherfucking star. You know, he, he got right. he got a big presence. Like, love him or hate him as an artist, when he was in House of Pain or not, but he walked in the room with the Celtic shit on him, some shades and a chain. And he was like, yo, who's this crazy white motherfucker? Who's this crazy dude? Like, right. he's like, He's like the hard white boy um, in the schoolyard or, or, you know, he's that dude. Like he can hang, you know, and, and he, he has a big presence as a human being. He got a big, loud voice and he likes to be the center of attention. And I'm not really like that. I'm a little, I'm not quite as, as loud and, and flashy as Homeboy is. I, I'm a little different. He, um, I underestimated his star, his star charisma, mm-hmm. right? His star presence. And he had, to, he had that to back up the song. And because of that, and he had right. the story, I was in House of Pain, I had a heart attack. My shit is really official, um, and I still rap. You know, I think that that really propelled a lot of it. He, he could sell it, and the record was really fucking good. So, you know, I think that i had underestimated that, and he got really good live. So I think that all of those things, um, plus the effect that record had on other musicians, can't be underestimated. Like, we did this thing at K-Rock, and the Google Goo Dolls was playing with us. I'm like I'm not like a Google Goo Dolls fan, but I had to respect it because they used to be a punk rock band. They kind of sounded like the replacements, who I used to love. So, so dude came up to us though, and he was, he had his acoustic guitar and he was playing "What It's Like," Johnny Z, the dude huh. from the Google Goo Dolls. And I was like, "Yo, that's ill." He's like, Yo, "This is my favorite. That's my favorite song, man." He's like, "I'm, I'm really cool that wow. we're, we're doing this together, man. We should, we should tour." We, he never toured with them, but he was mad cool. This dude's giving us mad love. And Homeboy from The Verve gave us love. And we love that band, The Verve. He gave us love, man. And, and it was coming from musicians that we had a lot of respect for. Um, Homeboy Mario C, who did the Beastie shit. And Lenny Kravitz picked Eric to go on tour with him. Um, and he mm-hmm. he gave us love, he gave Eric love, and you know, things like that. So we had people who were people that we really respected, kind of give give him a lot of love and so that I think that spread throughout things too and look man Eric was a good interview MTV liked him and he could go out there and sell it and and we got lumped in this rap rock world thing that was going ape shit right then it was just fucking going ham and he was in the middle of that too and um you know he was nothing like Limp Bizkit but Limp Bizkit was giving him props too and all these other people were giving him props so you know we got lumped in with these guys we weren't really like we were like Beck or the Beasties, or more like Cake and them, the Eels. But but we this whole thing went crazy and we rode that wave. We had timing, right, and a lot of things in life are timing. That was one of them. So
0: y'all get together and decide to produce another album. We do. Eat that white. Eat at
1: is But in the interim, we did some other stuff.
0: Mm-hmm. You and you and Everlast
1: did some other stuff. Yeah, or you, we, you, did, you went we did. We did. Me and a bunch of people. But me and Everlast did the song for. This show, this, this movie, Big Daddy, mm-hmm. um, with Adam Sandler, and that was a nice paycheck. We get the call for, um, from my old friend, Pete Gambark, and Gambark hits me up and, and says, Hey, man, like I am A&R and a Santana record. We really like the Everlast record. Do you guys have a song for this album. And I was like, yeah, but we didn't have a song. And I knew. <laughs> sure we do. Uh... We would have shit. I called Eric. I said, "Eric man, I got this call from San- for Santana. It's a big ass paycheck. Do we have anything? You got anything?" He said, "Yo, so crazy. Like a week or two ago, a couple of weeks ago I wrote my first song since the album. He was in a in a, you know, he had a little window of time before he's going on the next tour. So he came to New York for some shit he had to do. And we laid the song down. And it was Put Your Lights On. Put
0: your lights on.
1: And I had this drum loop I'd use for a casual song. It kind of reminds me of Jerry with the Damager. It's got this weird sound in it, and, and it sounds Latin. It's not a Latin record, but it feels Latin, and it's like cryptically slow. So I took those drums and chopped them up, and, and I was like, yo, this feels Latin to me. And he was like, oh, yeah, it does. And he put the song down, and he programmed the B section, where the drums switch around and go Timberland. Um, it's very similar to like a lot of stuff that was going on back then. You know, the Timberland thing was popping off. And we had to experimented with that a few times already. Um, I did a remix for Watch Me Shine today, and I used like a Timberland style beat. And it was, it was, it was cool. We all liked it. it. It didn't go ham, but it was also third single on the album. We made the song in like a day. We go to San Francisco, my favorite place. At that point in time, Hieroglyphics is out there. Um, my dad's out there. I'm working with Carlos Santana and fantasy studios, which is where Creedence recorded and all the great, all wow. the great fantasy jazz stuff that we all sampled. Um, and, you know, from John, ha- John Hammond, big Sur sweet on down all these records that I've, that are on the walls that I grew up sampling and loving, Um, you know, the blackbirds and, and early Patrice Russian and, and that whole, like, the Mizell Brothers thing and, and all that was made there. And, you know, this stuff all means a lot to me. And also the Creedence stuff. And my dad's in San Francisco. And, and I'm, I told him I'm coming out there. I was, and I'm out there, I call him. I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm in Fantasy Studios in Berkeley working with Carlos Santana. you should come by the studio. My dad was so freaked out he couldn't come by the studio. He's like, I'm, wow. I'm I just, I'm, I'm too, I can't do it. Like, he wanted to, but he didn't come. Um, I had Pep from Hyro and Tajay meet me and brought me some trees <laughs> and and they came in and popped in. Um, and my man, Tim, who who ma- ended up managing him and Tim always says, yo, I remember I met you with, at that Santana s- session. So I went up there and man, we're in that studio and, and um, it, you know, it's badass. And, and Carlos has, um, I put like a little keyboard sample in there and some things in there. And Carlos is the coolest dude. He shows up and he's so fucking cool to us, man. And he's like, oh, I love this song. And he, you know, Everlast does the, the refrain at the end. He sings in, in Arabic and he's singing basically hmm. Allah is God um, in Arabic. And, and that's the first thing Carlos wanted to know. He wanted to know the chords on the song and then he wanted to know what he was saying. And he's like, oh, that's beautiful. I want to keep that. And Eric was like, yeah, we got to keep it. The vibes were tremendous. Mm. His band is there. His band is super cool. They don't really know what Pro Tools is then, but we got the rig set up. And huh. we're explaining what it is to Carlos. And that we're going to record the tape and we're going to record the Pro Tools. And this is how we do it. And it can allow us to move things around and do all the stuff. And he's not skeptical. He's pretty cool about it. And... His keyboard player is there, and his name's Chester Thompson. We're vibing and talking. So I have this keyboard thing I want to replay, and I'm like, "Hey man, I gotta ask you something." He's like, "What?" I was like, "You're the dude from Tower of Power, right?" He's like, "Oh yeah, hell yeah." And I'm like, "Whoa!" And I'm like, <laughs> "I'm like, man, you know, like my dad took me to see you guys play at a car show in San Jose when I was like 12 years old, um, and I'll never forget it. Cause like, you know, all the fucking zoot suit like cholo dudes were were there at their cars and. It was amazing. I was like, you know, you guys are like one of the great funk bands of all time. And he's like, oh man, that's so cool. Like we're we're, we're vibing. And I have him replay this part. And I'm like, here's a sample. And he's like, I can play it like this, but I can play it like that. I can play it like this. And I was like, oh, I had a farfisa and a Hammond. He's like, it's a Hammond, not a farfisa. He plays it both times, gives it to me. I, I change it a little bit. And um the 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 percussionist is there. And he's playing around and he's over he's great. Call Perazzo, he's he's a conguero. he's you know one of the greats of all time. You know, he played with all the greats. Ray Barreto, like he's he's a legend. Mm-hmm. Um Candido, he's like, you know, he's one of the last great congueros. And and I love Latin music, so hanging out with him is really cool. And I and I'm like, no, nah, man, play it like this. He's like, man, come in here and show me how to play it. And I'm like, oh, like that. <laughs> and I'm like, this is it. And he's like, all right, record yourself. <laughs> and I kind of play it and I have him play it over. And he's like, that's it. I was like, yes. He's like, oh man. <laughs> but he's my boy. He's like, and I was like, he's like, yo, is that you who, who smells like that? And I'm like, I got the loud in my pocket. I said, yeah. We went outside and smoked some weed. And and it was just That's so cool, sweet. man. These guys were, they really let me produce them. So, so I'll get to the meat mm-hmm. and potatoes of it. So you know Carlos is gonna solo on everything. That's what he does. Right. So we get to the break part. And he, you know, he takes a couple of passes, and man, I can't. Look, man, I love Jimi Hendrix. Jimi Hendrix and jo- John Coltrane are... That is God of music, those two people. The combination of virtuosity and soul, that is very rare. Hmm. A lot of people are virtuosic, but they don't got soul, right? And then there's guys like Miles or even David Gilmore who play beautifully, but their virtuosic skill is not Coltrane or, or Jimi Hendrix. So... When he's soloing, I know this sounds super corny, I felt the spirit of Jimi Hendrix in the room. I had never mm. heard anyone play that extraordinary and that soulful in front of me before in my entire life. And I felt I had an outer body experience of sorts. Wow. Um, maybe it was just a really good weed, but I don't think so. So, <laughs> so um, man, it was, it was fucking cool. And I, for the first time in my life, really was like, I made it. Like, I'm playing with mm-hmm. someone I grew up listening to. I'm working with them. My dad loves Santana. I told Carl, I so, said, yeah, I'm trying to get my dad to come through, but he's he's too scared because he used to see you in the 24th Street Mission band. And he was like, oh, yeah, your dad must be from out here. And he's like, I grew up right over there. And it's just so fucking cool. We're talking about all this music. So I'm recording it, me and John, and we're blown away. And we have a whole bunch of passes. And we're like, hey, man. We want to um, do some editing. And he's like, explain. I was like, well, you know what comping vocals or comping parts are. He's like, yeah, I never really did too many, too much comping on my solos. I said, well, just, just give us like a minute, like an hour or so. We're going to fuck around. and."
0: So will comping be like stitching together maybe different parts yeah, of the Yeah, ed- editing
1: parts right. together. Gotcha. Exactly. So, oh, here's the other thing. He plays with Paul Reed Smith. And, and I know a lot about guitars. Cause look, man, like I said, Jimi Hendrix, man, Stevie Ray Vaughan, like Jeff Beck, I love great guitarists. That's one of the, the things like, you know, I, I love that shit. So I wanted to try, I was like, he, you know, he used to play a SG, which is a, a Gibson, you know, Tony Iommi played it. It sounds kind of between a frat and, and a strat and a, a Les Paul. And I know he's not gonna play Les Paul, but I'm like, Hey man, do you ever play the SG you used to play? I want him to play the SG. And he was like, no, I only play the Paul Reed Smith. They invented these guitars for me. So I was like, okay, Eric had a Paul Reed Smith too. And I didn't love the sound of the Paul Reed Smith necessarily. But sounds different in Carlos's hands than Eric's. The other right. thing is when, when it came time to lay the, I forgot this, the initial tracks, we think Carlos is going to play the acoustic part. And he's like to Eric, like, oh, go lay that down he's like you're not going to play it? he's like no i don't really uh, i don't play a lot of acoustic rhythm guitar these days um and we're like weird um but cool so eric's <laughs> like super in, freak intimidated look you're going to lay the guitar part that you recorded in my basement in front of one of the greatest living guitarists in the world so we lay it down in solo time right so he's playing this, he, he plays a four or five solos and and we're like hey man we got the magic. Give us, you're done for the day. We're gonna leave everything up. And he's like, What's the plan? I was like, I think we're gonna try and comp the solo. You're welcome to hang out, and we're gonna figure it out and and kind of create what we think the solo is. Mm-hmm. So he did that. And we made a CD for him of what we felt the solo is, and he was like, Yeah, I like that. Like when we he was like, Oh, the comp is cool, like everyone was into it and they had never seen him doing pro tools so you know the comp you don't have to bounce down so you're just eddie it's way quicker so we got it together in maybe right. an hour or two an hour maybe a little longer and we gave him a, a cd of it and he he's like i'm gonna learn this and i'm gonna come back and play it in one pass so he wow. came back the next day and he played it better than the comp with more fire only overdubbed two things which was the out because he wanted it to be more bombastic and and that was it, man. He cut that shit quick, and we went We made sure we had everything, and we had everything, and it was it was go time, man. It was easy to do. We did it in I want to say two days. It may have been three. We might we we came in the last day and just made sure we backed everything up and had all the tapes and right. the, what the band didn't need to be there and they weren't there and we just left our gear and we shipped it all back. So we did it the third day, but it wasn't really in recording. Um, we took it back. We mixed it. They didn't like the mix. They had Tom Lord Alge mix it. We knew he would play with things, so I erased, because he had mixed something for me before, I erased everything off the master and the, the pro tool session that I did not want him to use, so he had to use my arrangement. Mm. And he called me up and he said, you didn't leave me much to play with. I was like, yeah, that's the point. So I wanted Andy Wallace to mix it, but Andy was busy. So Homeboy, and, and they didn't like Andy as much. And, and Tom and Chris lord Algie had all the radio hits at that point. Sent it back, and it was really bright. I wouldn't mix it so bright, but it sounded good, man. And, and um, the album comes out, and man, Rob Thomas, thank you, Rob Thomas. You, 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 you did this <laughs> record Smooth on there, and that shit went right, gangbusters. Right, right. And the-
0: Well, now Smooth is the first single out. The yeah. First
1: single out. And the craziest thing about Smooth mm-hmm. is- one of my best friends is in the video, my friend Harry Jemungi, mm. who had been in jail like, and came out. like He's a great-looking kid, and he's like a pro skater, and he ends up in the video. And I was like, oh, my God, and my boys are in the video. This other cat I know was in it, and um, the, you know, the thing goes, MTV, crazy. Carlos Santana is back. And then Maria Maria comes out, and that's a huge hit too. We get the third single, which does well. It, it was a K-Rock hit. It was a rock radio hit. Top 20 hit. I think top 10. Not only that, though, it's a fucking dope ass song, man. The shit is fucking sick. It really is a great song. It's as good as anything I've ever done. It's it's fucking great. Eric wrote a great song. It's it's kind of um a dear prudence style song, repeats the verse twice. The break is crazy. His playing is phenomenal. It's a spiritual song. It's cryptic. And put your lights out, you know. It's it's about him almost dying. It is about what happened. Mm. It's the first and maybe only song he really wrote about that and it has so much emotion to it that I knew it would do well and I knew it was going to be a emotive and big song when we did it. It was and um, it's nice to be right and happy because you could be right or happy mm. a lot of times. But once I was right and happy. So man, it was a wonderful experience and I got to work with Carlos two more times, and he's a, he's a great dude, man. He's super duper cool. And, and, you know, I really appreciated him letting me produce him. I've worked with rappers who didn't let me produce him, they just let me make the beat. Homeboy let me produce right. him, and that was fucking cool. The whole band let me produce them, and man, those guys can fucking play their ass off. It was cool as fuck. So, one of the next times you get
0: to work with Carlos is on Eat at Whitey's. Which is the follow up, whatever last. Um, so coming off an album that sold three mil, I'm sure Tommy Boy's happy. But fuck Tommy um, Boy. What is y'all? Let me just
1: tell you something. (laughs) Tommy Boy, like, look, they hired this lady who worked at Cheryl Valentine, and she did her thing at rock radio. No doubt. They they worked hard. But they were like, they won by default, kinda like they weren't Mm -hmm. really like a part of the record. And and I had a thing with the A and R guy even. Max Nichols he tried to put his name on the record. I was like, "Motherfucker, you ain't do shit. I ain't in that record. Mm-hmm. Get out of here." I was like pissed. And and you know, it was just like, you know, you wouldn't return Eric's calls. He had a heart attack. Right. Monica who gave me the job, who I love ain't here no more, and she needs it. She should be part of this. And Albie, our man, man got fired, and he was the first one to say we should work together. So so you know, I I'm like on some you all ain't the people we started this with. You ain't the guys who believed. You're the guys who avoided the phone calls. And you, you got the, mm. you got the win. But did you really earn the win? I felt, I felt the kind of way about it. And so did Eric. And that guy there who worked there named Dan Hoffman, who was like our mortal enemy. He wanted, I think, did all that bullshit, kids bop shit and all that, Razor and Tie. But he was a man dude was just whack. Man, he was a corny motherfucker, and he used to talk to us real greasy. And I remember we went up to Tommy Boy one day between albums and um, we seen Nori and them and, and Nori was like, because Eric was in, I think he's in Super Thug in one of them videos. We was fucking with Nori and Nori was like, yo, we about to go upstairs and turn deaths over. You want to come? And we, we just laughed. He's <laughs> like, no, nah, we're good on that, kid. You know, and, and Tom, to his credit later on, um, you know, I did some things with him and made some money, but, but you know, and, and look, Tom also reached out to me when my dad passed and, I can't I can't super vilify Tom, but but Tom you know Tom, Tommy ain't our fucking boy um, is, is how the <laughs> song went. But you know he's he's made some amends to both of us and whatever yada di yada. I love Monica, and I I really wish our Monica Lynch could have been part of it. So we get towards the second record, and and it, it the process was was relatively smooth. We had the new studio, the songs came quick. His keyboard player Keefus, was more involved. We you know, look, I know when to step up and when not to step up. Eric did, um, he did a good-ass job. I think he he wrote some very good songs. If I have one complaint about that album is the dynamic of rap versus singer-songwriter isn't there as much. My biggest regret is that, one, I couldn't fix it. I probably could have handled it better. Um, and it really hurt the impact of that record because... Regardless of the lack of rap songs, it's the best body of singer-songwriter songs Everlast ever did. The album is tremendous. Black Coffee is one of the best songs I ever produced.
0: She like flowers, she like toffee. She
1: kissed she me softly. There's some really incredible stuff on that album it doesn't have a hit song and we made a crucial mistake and i did not make this mistake white jesus is the first single i mean black jesus black jesus yeah can't call a, a rock record black jesus so mm. when i told them and if you and if if i look at the spines i remember it's like the back of my hand like the half inch and the Dats also a freak of nature because that's the first line in the song. So I was like, call the song Freak of Nature. Rock Radio won't play a record called Black Jesus, particularly in the South. Mm-hmm. It's a great fucking song. It's fucking nasty. I mixed it three times. I don't think there's always something that bothered me a little about the mix. The drums could have popped more, but the production is great on it. It's a really good fucking song. But we fucking blew it. And the song tanks, doesn't go the distance. The album's not out yet. I have an emergency meeting with Carl Stubner and Tom Silverman. I tell them, let's fall back, put the album out next year. And they're like, nope, all our radio buys are in. Our ad buys are in. Wow. We're, out. We're going out with a couple hundred thousand dollars in ad and radio buys and we can't do it. They don't listen to me. On top of that, Eric always want to work with Jonas Ackerman. He worked with Jonas Ackerman on the video. Jonas Ackerman, who did some really good videos. They shot in London. I went to London for the video. The vibe on the set was shitty. It got edited to death by MTV because a guy got hit by a train and didn't go the distance. Instead of selling a couple of million, we sold a couple hundred thousand. It's a gold record, but it didn't go the distance. And it's a shame because it's really fucking good.
0: We'll get back into it in one second, but I need to take a quick moment and shout out our sponsor, DistroKid. Man, so many of my homies use DistroKid. It's a music distribution service that makes distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keeping 100% of their royalties and earnings. A million plus artists rely on DistroKid to put their music on Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services a million plus artists and i swear i know at least a 100 of them and now distro kid has an app you can use the app to upload new releases see your distro kid bank and get notified when you've earned royalties you can even check your streaming stats Live. The DistroKid app is now available on iOS. Go to the App Store and download it. DistroKid also has a new feature called Instant Share that allows you to easily share large files securely with collaborators, producers, booking agents, managers, playlist curators and more basically anybody that needs access to your music there's an easy way to upload it and send them a link go to distrokid.com slash instant share drag and drop your files to upload and then you can copy and send your link right there it's free to send one gigabyte of files that's like a hundred mp3s don't quote me on that Go to distrokid.com slash open mic. That's distrokid.com slash open mic. O-P-E-N-M-I-K-E for 30% off your membership. You got some really dope guest appearances do. on there. Uh, specifically, what will jump out at me is a join with CeeLo and a joint with Kura. So
1: the CeeLo thing, Chris Lighty obviously is my man. He was managing him, And Eric I met CeeLo um, on a Santana thing and they were cool. And I knew CeeLo a little bit. We were cool. So CeeLo came to my shitty basement studio and tracked that shit. And he was like, Oh, this is just like the dungeon fam, the dungeon. And, <laughs> and he was like, this is so cool. And Chris Lighty was like, you really still work here? I was like, yo, I love this place. So we did it in my shitty little studio and CeeLo nailed it quick. And I love that song. I love the, the sound of it. Um, I love the guitar he's playing on. He's playing a, it's, it was a, what's it called a, It's like a steel pan, sorry, a steel pan guitar, and it's a electric guitar that's made out of steel. It's small. I think it was made by Fender. It's a it's a retro guitar, and it sounded really cool through this rev, a Fender Reverb Spring amp that we used with, with the Fender Twin. It sounds great. It sounds super swampy, and I love the way that record sounds. I love the drums on that record, too, and the little samples I got in there, and CeeLo killed the harmony on it. Um, if you don't know it's CeeLo, you might not know it's him. And I saw him, <laughs> every time I'd see him after that, he would always be so cool. Uh, he's just a great dude, man. CeeLo Green is one of the coolest. It was an honor to work with him because I think he's a wonderful singer. He, he takes it back to the soul. Um... And, you know, of the music I love, so that's why I love it. And coincidentally, my dad loved that song, Fuck You. Um, I turned him on to it, and he likes CeeLo Green a lot.
0: So this comes out, ends up being gold because of various circumstances that you just laid out. It didn't necessarily reach the expectations that y'all thought it could have hit. But you've now done that first Everlast record you've done, a Santana single, which goes huge and... This album which still achieved some success. So what was your plan coming out of this for what you were thinking you would do next? Man,
1: I don't really have much of a plan. So what I didn't tell you is, during the making of the second record, me and John's relationship had really deteriorated. Um, mm. we, we just weren't really seen eye to eye. Work had slowed up. He bought a house upstate. He bought a couple of cars. He liked old cars. It didn't help that both of us were smoking a copious amount of weed, and and you know I was drinking a lot. And look, man, I had money, and you couldn't tell me my shit didn't stink. I was hanging out a lot, and doing a lot, you know. I was doing mm-hmm. a whole lot, and I broke up with my girl. And man, I was I was wilding out, man. I started hanging out with all these like little like model chicks and and i guess the equivalent of what instagram models are now like car show chicks like and mm-hmm. i was never seen without a bevy of chicks and i would go to clubs i get paid to hang out at clubs with a table full of chicks like it's pretty pretty crazy way i was living my life and i'd, I'd literally work every day and then i go home and i work out and i go out and i was like i was on one so you know, I was running around the streets and and just being a wild boy. And and John was really resentful of the way I lived my life because mm-hmm. I had the ability to live my life like that. And he didn't necessarily. Plus, he was never a social animal. I'm a social animal. You know, I'll go out to the like. Look, man, I'm the kind of dude who I'll go out to the club and I'll I like I'll dance with nine different chicks till one of them goes home with me. You know, and and I'm gonna do that a lot. You know, and that's just my style. Like. I know everybody in New York, and I could get in anywhere and go anywhere. John's not like that. And, and um, our relationship, you know, we worked together damn near 15 years at that point, and it, it started unraveling. We did a, a project with, with India Davenport that I thought was really good. Mm-hmm. We never got her a deal. I can't tell you why. I should have put it out myself independently. I didn't. She was difficult to deal with, and she could never finish. Nothing was ever done. And that was really annoying. But you know what? I did what I always do when things are going bad. I made a lot of beats. I had this deal at Loud. I made the stimulated compilation, which was probably mediocre, fair to good. But it got me out of my publishing deal, helped me get another one. I finessed it. I got my back end on my deal. I reached all my points at Loud. They had to break me off. And I got broke off right before they went out of business. They dropped my deal and went out of business. But I I skated into the bank, I'm good like that. Mm -hmm. John was resentful, he didn't even want to do that record. For the first time ever I had to pay him to work on it outside of splitting everything down the middle. But that that led to the Mm -hmm. further unraveling of our relationship. And like, look man, we had another partner in the beginning and he was like my best friend, my big brother. And our relationship suffered for a decade because we parted ways and and because I was stupid. I, I opened my mouth and said some shit I shouldn't have said in the interview. And, you know, I denigrated him. I'm not the best, I, I wasn't a bad station of maturity. And um, I own it. And that, that's a huge regret in my life because I love that brother, Gibby, the Johnny. And mm-hmm. uh, we did make amends before he died, thank God. But you know, like, look, I miss that dude. And so with John, I was like, this is gonna go bad, but maybe I don't have to go that bad. So, you know, it was like getting divorced, man. And, and in the midst of this, I got tapped on the shoulder to work with Santana again. I did this mm. song I wrote called Twisted. I can't really play guitar, but I had the idea and I made it. I want it to sound like Donny Hathaway, The Ghetto. It doesn't necessarily, but it does have a Latin flavor to it. I play keyboards on it. John engineered the initial sessions Anthony Hamilton sang it. I wrote it with a girl named Nandi Willis. Really, she really only wrote part of the verses. I wrote the chorus. I wrote the bridge. I wrote the outro. It became a matter of dispute later because I found out her friend Green had written it with her, and she jerked Green on the credit, Green Jones, Mm -hmm. and we fixed it. I'll never work with Nandi again after that. I don't play that. Um, But for a minute, I had this, this group these cool black chicks who come and write with me and that was that that was their crew and and my homegirl Toya and I was doing a lot of writing sessions EMI I was writing with Angela Hunt nothing ever came in but, but I did do a lot of writing sessions with people I sold a couple of things nothing special but me and Anthony worked really fucking well together and and I knew Anthony a little bit they brought him to my studio and me and Anthony became like best for, you know we're the new besties and me and him were running around <laughs> hanging out and, No, he's the closest thing to Bill Withers vocally I had ever heard at that point. I love Bill Withers. And me and Ant would just chill. Shit, Ant would come to the studio. He had no money. He hadn't blown up yet. We would hang out, smoke trees, go shopping for shit, sneaker shopping. He would cut my hair. And I would, you know, (laughs) throw him a bone here and there, whatever I could. He was a great dude. And we did that song really quick. We didn't sell it for like eight months, a year. I tried to get on the second... Santana record, didn't pop. That record flopped. They turned right around, started to make another one right away. I resubmitted it to another A&R guy to, be, to Pete Gambard, who was doing the record again, and he went for it. So I got that off. I got paid more money than I ever got paid for that song, and I'll explain to you why. I had to do it twice. I recorded it initially with Josh Stone. I wrote it. Anthony did the demo. Mm. Clive Davis and his A&R guy, Steve Ferrara, who died, they told me they wanted um, Josh Stone to sing it. She was a star then. And I was right. like, "Man, she can't sing this." Is, I wrote this. This is about a woman. Coincidentally, it's about my old girl, Mary Santer, who I had broken up with. The one who was with me when I, well, you know, when I was doing the second Everlast, the Grammys, and, yeah. You know, after four years, three years, she got sick of my bullshit, and she had every right to get sick of my bullshit because it was a lot of bullshit. I wrote about her trying to get her back, and she wasn't. She never. I never got her back, but um, <laughs> but I got a huge paycheck to do the record. <laughs> so, <laughs> I I did that record. And jo- I had to transpose it, put in a different register for Josh Stone. So I recorded it with the band, and it was cool. But Carlos did say, why, why are they taking that brother off the record? He sounded like Bill Withers. And I was like, yeah, mm. I feel the same thing. And, and I said, you know, I feel like it's a man song. He's like, yeah, but I'm going to listen to Clive. He always did me right. And I said, respect, you know. And we went and did it, and I had to record her vocals. Here's the other thing. She didn't do the vocals with us in, in Berkeley. I had to go do vocals with her alone. And Josh Stone, no disrespect, she can't sing that song the way Anthony Hamilton did.
0: Right. I mean, it wasn't written for it, her. Right. It's not. So.
1: I, I transposed it. When you transpose it, it lost some of the meat to it. You know, It lost some mm-hmm. of the some of the, the booty was gone. It ain't have it. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it lost some of the weight, and that was part of it. Because it's a blues song, really. It's in a you know, it's in D. It's a blues song. So, you know, I transpose it. And it wasn't really working, and I don't know how they recorded her first vocals on her first record or second record. I don't have any of the science, but I had troubles with her singing, and it wasn't her pitch, but she moved a lot. She didn't stay on the mm. mic the way I needed her to, and man, I worked her out for two days on that song. I mean, look, man, not, I've been through some vocal sessions with singers, and Dia included, and Dia would work me out. I don't know if you know that term, but when you get worked out on a vocal session, that shit is, man... That's a motherfucker, man. That shit ain't easy. And it's really trying and, and it can cause a lot of tension. She was cool. She wasn't, right. it wasn't a bad vibe, but I had to compress her to death. And I had to ride her vocals because she's moving a lot. I literally at one point went in there and I took the grease pen on the floor and I draw a box and I said, do not move from this box. Stay on the mic. Don't move. There's not live. I have you on a Neumann." Like you're on a, you know, you're on a 47 and and I need you to stay on this motherfucker. It's a sensitive mic. It's tube mic and and I'm squashing you. and I don't love the sound. Hmm. I didn't nail the vocals. I did the mix. The demo had program drums. Me playing percussion, me playing keyboards, my boy Gabby playing the guitar and Gabby playing bass. The, rich, the, re, the, the one I had was transposed, live drums, live percussion, not my percussion, Benny from, from Santana's band, the whole band, Chester playing keys, we did everything. Anthony's vocals are gone, it's her vocals, and it's in a different register, and I bring it to, to Clive, or I send it to Clive, and he calls me up, and they're like, come to the office now. I was like, well, I can't be, they're like, Whoa. get to the office. I get to the office, and they hand me my fucking ass.
0: Whoa. He says
1: to me, this sounds like acid jazz. Damn. I said, I told you she couldn't sing the song, man. And he goes, I don't know who your manager is, but I would advise you not to be cheeky. And my heart skipped a beat. I seen this dude's going to kill me. He's about to stab me. He goes, I want you to recut this song In the original key, I hate the live drums, and I want it to sound like this. His boy cues up the demo. Mm -hmm. I said, well, I told you that the first time. (laughs) And he goes, once again, you have a job to do. And I said, look, man, I get it. I'm a waiter in the service industry. But I have still not gotten paid my advance for the first part of the record. And he goes, who's your lawyer? I said, Peter Paterno. He said, I'm going to call Peter Paterno. The minute we're done here, you're going to get paid in full. But I expect you to do the job the way you're tasked. And mm-hmm. he was like, okay, next meeting. They, they give me the bums, rush out of office. Pete Gambarg is there. I, said, I looked like I was going to cry. Pete see me. I was shook. I was hurt, mad. Didn't, I held my tongue. I got checked. Clive fucking oh I forgot to say this Clive Davis told me he said Kashif cut Let's Hear it For The Boy 17 times and I used the demo damn I think it was Let's Hear it For The Boy whatever her first single was and I was like I want to know that's what it was I think and I was like Let's Hear It For The Boy it's Williams I said wow and I said maybe you have demo-itis and he said no I was right and he was right so I went. I got, we call Santana. We got to retrack it. I still got the original vocals. Oh, you still are you still using Joss at this nope. point? No, I had this guy Bo Body. I see. John I see. John's done. Josh Stone is off. John Gamble's off. It's. I'm starting all over again. I go and cut it in the original key with the band. They we all know it sounds better. I have Anthony's guide vocal. I get. I I I, I keep. The, I have the live drums cut again. I go and have Anthony sing it. I do the mix. I um, finish the song. The mix is good. Jamie mix it, Jamie Staub, my man. Um, And I bring it to Clyde, very sneakily, past aggressive style, I have the live drums in there for fills and some other parts. Steve Jordan plays the drums over. That's what it is. That's right. So I I recut it, and I didn't like the drums again. And I went to New York, and Jordan cut the drums for me. And he cut it separately. Kick, snare, hi-hat. Played them separately so there's no leakage at the Magic Shop. So it sounds like programming, and I have his stuff in there and his fills. So Mm. I have the drums with the programming. It sounds like the demo way more. The vocals are bigger a little showier, the solo's cool, and Clive approves it. I made the most money I ever made on one song on that song because I had to cut it twice. He paid me twice. Oh, that's what I told him, too. I said, you know, I have to cut the whole record again. I saw him not got paid for the first record. He goes, I'll pay you again. I'm going to call Peter Paterno. But he checked me the way he said it, and they paid me twice. Then, oh, that's right. I didn't mix it. I forgot. I got it fucked up. Serban mixed it. They didn't like my mix. Servin Ganesh mixed it. I know he's getting like $25,000 to mix it. They, he called me up and asked me what to do because they rejected his first mix. And I said, I don't know, man. You're getting to pay $25,000. You need to figure that out. I ain't getting paid. <laughs> he said, wow, really, bro? I said, look, man, you're, you're mixing it like a rap record. You're leading with the low end on the kick, not how it gets mixed. Go listen to The Ghetto by Donnie Hathaway. And make your version of The Ghetto by Donny Hathaway. You need to rock the Mm -hmm. snare. I got here the percussion. Play with the mid-range. Don't worry about the low end booming. It's not one of those records. And make sure the top sounds bright. He nailed it. And that gets Mm -hmm. used. So, so, you know, that was... And in the interim, I think before I did that, I did the third... I think I did the third Everlast record after that. And that, you know, he was on Island. That's a whole other story. It it was all fucked up. But, oh, I I got one more Carlos Anadol. After the record comes out, maybe a year or two, I was in Vegas at the Magic Show, walking through the lobby of the Hard Rock Cafe. Carlos is playing there. Uh, um, Carlos walks by me with his bodyguards and my friend Benny Renfeld, the bass player. I said, Carlos, the bodyguards, step back, the hard rock guy. And Benny's like, no, that's Dante. That's our friend. And he's like, really? And Carlos is like, Dante. And he gives me a hug. And I'm like, man, like, what are you doing? I'm here for this thing, for work. He says, hey, man, you want to come to the show? I said, yeah, I do. How many tickets do you need? I was like, I don't know, four, two, whatever. He gives me some tickets. I took a couple of friends. They sat us in, like, the front row. And he dedicated, so dedicated, put your lights on to me. That's dope. And uh, I went backstage, and, and all my friends met Santana, and, and they were, he was telling them what a genius I was. And he did that with my old girlfriend, too. Mary one time in New York, um, he always gave me a lot of praise and love, and, and it's really cool when someone who's one of your heroes does that, because look, man, everyone my age grew up with a Braxis in their house, right? And Oye Como Va, mm-hmm. like, I love the Tito Puente version, but honestly, I like the Santana version better, because it's the one I knew first, um, and a bunch of other stuff, you know, I was, I was a huge, huge fan of Santana, my parents liked him, and he made great records, and Braxis was a motherfucker, and... I grew up on that shit in the house. So, you know, Evil evil Ways and and all those songs were like, you know, they're part of my childhood. So, you know, that's as close as I ever came to to touching rock royalty. And, and man, he's a great dude. He's super cool. Like Santana's one of the people. And I would say this about Anthony Hamilton, too. They're as cool as you think they are. Like, you're like, oh, man, that dude's as cool as you, you would think he would be. And he is.
0: Well, it's always good to hear... Uh People who are really talented are also good people, because we know that's often not the case.
1: Way too often. Stony Island.